It's very good afternoon. It's Niall Boylan for a podcast special today. Um, we want to talk, if we could, for a lot of people may remember Veronica Guerin. Veronica Guerin, of course, was one of Ireland's most famous investigative journalists. And she focused on organised crime in the Republic of Ireland. And she was murdered in a contract killing, believed to have been ordered by a South Dublin-based drug cartel. She began writing articles about the Irish criminal underworld uh, for the Sunday Independent. And in 1996, after pressing charges for assault against a major organised crime figure, John Gilligan, Giram was ambushed and fatally shot in her car while waiting at a traffic light. The shooting caused a national outrage in Ireland and, of course, brought huge attention to these crime gangs. On the evening of the 25th of June 1996, Gilligan's drug gang members, Charles Bowden, Brian Mean, Kieran Kulkanen, Peter Mitchell and Paul Ward, met at the distribution premises on the Greenmount Industrial Estate. Bowden, the gang's distributor and ammunition quartermaster, supplied the three uh, with Colt Python revolvers loaded with three fifty-seven Magnum uh, semi-watercutter bullets. And on the 26th of June, as I said, 1996, while driving her red Opel Calibra, Gearham was shop, or stopped at a red traffic light on the Nace Jewel carriageway near Newlands Cross on the outskirts of Dublin, unaware she was being even be followed at the time, and she was shot six times fatally by one of the two men sitting on a motorcycle. One man who has talked to John Gilligan, who's lived a life of crime, and John Gilligan, of course, was one of the chief suspects in her murder, or certainly in organising her murder, although he denies that to this day, even though he spent quite a substantial amount of time in jail. Um, one of the men who spoke to him is journalist and author, Jason O'Toole, and he joins me now. Jason, good afternoon to you. Hi, Niall. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Jason, we've spoken many times, and we'll come to John Gilligan in a minute, but You've done so many interviews throughout your career. You're a fabulous journalist. I've written, I've read many of your articles, particularly when you worked uh, with the hot press and many of the newspapers around the country. Was this an interview above all other interviews? And why did you have a huge interest in gangland crime? Was this something that you always wanted to do? Or, or how did you come about actually getting to meet John Gilligan? Well, I suppose John Gilligan was in any journalist's um, list of top 10 or top five, he's always going to be in that list of people that they want to interview because he's, the, you know, the most infamous criminal of the 20th, latter stages of the 20th century in Ireland because of the fact that he was, you know, put up on trial for the murder of Veronica Guerin and actually found he was acquitted of the of the, of the crime in, in the Special Criminal Court. And they said he his uh, solicitor must have been Houdini to get him off on that, <laughs> that one. But... Um, you know, I always had a fascinating fascination with, with interviewing criminals because uh, I think I said it to you before when I seen the movie The General, uh, the John Borman movie with, uh, about Martin Cattle. And um, when I left the cinema, watch after watching that film, I, I came away thinking, you never see interviews with all these criminals, but yet there's books and books and there's newspapers. I mean, the Sunday World is dedicated to uh, just writing about crime, but you never you never hear it from the horse's mouth. So when I got the opportunity to write for Hot Press, I said, I'm going to go out and try to interview these guys. Uh, <laughs> let's hear their side of the story. And how the Gilligan interview came about was, I, a name kept cropping up called Giovanni Di Stefano, an Italian guy who was a, a legal representative of uh, Dutchie Holland and Gilligan, Saddam Hussein, um, Harold Shipman, you know, the who's who of bad, baddies. Really. I, I, I was going to say the who's who of head cases, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, and he actually ended up doing 10 years in prison himself for uh, fraud because it, it, it was it was discovered later on in his career that he, he wasn't even a qualified barrister or, or a lawyer or whatever. So he just got out last year after doing 10 years in, in prison in London. But I flew over to Rome to meet him and uh, interviewed him for Hot Press and for Playboy. And he really enjoyed the interview. And I said to him, as you chant your arm, you know yourself, when you're looking for a good interview, Niall, any chance of an interview with Gilligan or um, Dutchie? And he said, leave with me. And a couple of months later, he, he rang me up and said, uh, you're on the guest list, so to speak. Uh, Gilligan will meet you in Port Leash Prison. So went into Port Leash Prison. This is 2008. Did you, have to get, did you have to get permission from the prison authorities to do that? Or like any journalist, did you, did you seek forgiveness afterwards? I, yeah, well, I just signed myself in as a guest, <laughs> as a, yeah. you know, they didn't even ask, yeah. you know, I just went in, showed my passport, uh, I was on the list, they let, let me in, and then um, I spent about three or four hours, well, about three hours with him that day, but afterwards he kept bringing me up on, 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 at night time, about for an hour or two each night for about a week. So Who, John Gilligan did? Yeah, yeah, from prison. So he was ringing so, you from jail. And how was he ringing you from jail? But had he got a mobile? He obviously had a mobile phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he just started ringing me up and telling me his life story. And I was recording the conversations. And it ended up being a 13,000 word feature in Hot Press magazine, uh, run over 14 or 15 pages over two editions. Uh, the, the, the Minister of, of Justice at the time, Dermot Ahern, uh, launched an investigation into wanting to know how I got into the prison. And then what happened was Hot Press was subsequently banned from the prison system as a result. So, yeah, so when I interviewed him for Hot Press, we, we ran it over two editions. Gilligan rang me up every night from a prison cell for about a week. And, you know, I was recording the conversations. And um, we, we, subs we, it was, we ran it in Hot Press over two editions, about 14, 15 pages. Dermot Ahern, the Minister for Justice at the time, launched an investigation into wanting to know how I got the interview. And then Hot Press was banned from the prison system as a result at the time, which was ridiculous. And so, but, but, but Gilligan himself, was was he cheesed off with the interview or was he okay with it? Because he would have got to see it, obviously. He was very happy with the interview because he? he said I didn't twist the word. I didn't twist anything he said. I, I forbade him. I printed it word for word what he said. I mean, the hard questions were put into the article. Yeah. I, I didn't twist any word he said. So from that yeah. perspective, he, he was happy was enough. Happy. Okay. Yeah. And, and I know you're, you're good at doing that because you've interviewed me a few times as well for Hot Press too. And and, I, and it's always been, because I'm always cautious about doing interviews with journalists because as you well know yourself, journalists have a habit of, you know, taking one line completely out of context and making you look like a fool. Whereas any interview I've ever done with you, you don't do that. And you ask unusual questions, which is more to the point. They're not questions that I would expect, which is which is what good journalism is all about. So let's move forward in time. The Gilligan Tapes, which is the book, by the way, which I have here. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about that a bit more in a, in a few minutes, right? But the book, that is being compiled essentially from, I think it's what you to say, 40 or 50 hours of recordings of both video and audio uh, of what John Gilligan said. When did you record that and how did you get permission to do that? Oh, yeah. Well, we'll have to jump, we'll have to go back a little bit because what happened was when he was released from prison in 2013, um, just before he was shot six times and he almost died and he, he got the last rights, I'd met him a couple of weeks before that. And we'd we'd talked. I, I had a, a secret meet with him in uh, 
in the Hibernian Club in Stephen's Green. I'd booked a room and he came up the back stairs and we met in the room and we talked about doing a book. And he said he wouldn't talk about his, his drug empire because he was involved in an ongoing case with Cap at the time. And I said, you know, that's a bit like interviewing Neil Armstrong and not asking about the moon. So, <laughs> this is at the time, of course, when Cab were taking the equestrian centre and taking all his property at the time. Yeah. So the book idea just faded dead in there. And I hadn't heard from him since he was shot. Uh, a month later, he was shot six times out in his brother's house. And I said, OK, I'm never going to hear from this guy again. And then last year, uh, he phoned up Hot Press and left a voicemail looking for me. And uh, I was going, Jesus, you know, you know, a million thoughts run through your head. What, why the hell? Why is John Gilligan, the biggest crime lord in the country, looking for me? Yeah. So I went out and got a burner phone and, and I rang him back because I didn't want him to have my phone number, to be honest with you. Yeah. And he said, now is the time. I'll, I'll do a book with you now. And I said, if we do a book, I'm not doing your memoir. It'll be my book. I'm not going to be your mouthpiece. Uh, but how about this? How about I record all the interviews and we do do it as a documentary as well right because, okay you know that hasn't been done before there has i haven't I, I i couldn't recall a documentary being done with you know in an english speaking with an english speaking gang lord you know talking at length on camera uh i thought that would be pretty unusual so he went away and thought about it and then a week later he rang me up and said okay let, let's let's do this and um so he was living in torre vieja uh outside of alicante on on, on that that part of the coast of Spain. So I thought, I thought I'd get this done and dusted with in a, you know, relatively quickly. I, 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 I bought two 4k cameras, taught myself how to use them, uh, booked a hotel room. And for after five days, we were still recording interviews and I, I went back and transcribed the tapes. And then I said, Oh, I'm missing lots and lots and lots here. So I ended up having to go back to them five or six times. So I recorded 40 hours of video footage and over 20 more hours of audio footage because you'd be calling them up and asking them questions and, mm. you know, this doesn't make sense. Can you can you clarify this for me, et cetera, et cetera. So that's how it came about. But it took over a year altogether. I mean, what, what was he like? I mean, we, we've seen pictures of him in his, his younger days. Actually, the, the picture of the, the front cover of the book is probably one of the most famous pictures. I'll just throw that up on the screen there. Uh, the, the picture of the book, um, that one there, it's probably one of the most famous pictures of him. Um, I, obviously, he's a lot older now. He's 70 years of age now, uh, or in and around that, certainly. Uh, and he's a lot more disheveled looking at this stage. But is he still wealthy, firstly? Does he, uh, does he dress well? Well, look, everybody is convinced he's a multimillionaire still. And I probably was originally thinking along those lines, too. But the guy doesn't dress like a rich man. He, 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 he was wearing the same suit that he wore the day he got out of prison in 2013 with buttons, miss, half, half broken buttons. The, you know, it was worn down. He, he doesn't dress like a wealthy man. He lives in a part of Torre Vieja where you can rent a villa for 550, 600 a month. Right, what's a box room in Dublin at the moment? A thousand, I think? Yeah, probably. You won't now. Yeah. You wouldn't even get a box room for a thousand. It'd be 1,600, yeah. Yeah, so mm. so he, he, he's not living an extravagant lifestyle over there. And but, he but, he, a, but he never did. Here was the thing. He's always said in any interviews I've ever seen from him or any conversations he's ever had that he likes to stay below the radar. He doesn't like to, although you wouldn't think that when he had the equestrian centre, but, but he likes to stay below the radar. He doesn't like to draw attention to himself. 
And, and he says that a lot, quite a lot in your tapes too and in your book too, that he doesn't want to draw attention to himself. And that's why he said he broke up from the gang and he blamed the gang, of course, on the murder and not him because he said they were drawing attention to him. So maybe that's all still part of what he does. Maybe he does have a lot of money. He just doesn't want to show people that he has a lot of money. Well, when during, his, during the height of his infamy in the 90s, he had, you know, an Aer Lingus gold card. He, he, was, he was shopping in, you know, the, the best shops in Dublin, you know, Brown Thomas and getting tailor-made suits. So he was a flashy dresser, you know. Mm, then, yeah. But he's yeah. not now. He, he, he actually, if he's as rich as everybody thinks he is now, I think he's a great Oscar winner performance because he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't think... So he plays him. the part of a pauper well. Yeah. He does, he does. He plays it well, definitely. Okay. So when you started doing these tapes, did, did he turn around to you at the start and say, listen, I can't talk about this. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, I don't want to talk about the day that Veronica died, which is obviously what everybody wants to listen to. I don't want to talk about this or this person or that person. Was there any hole or was there no holes barred? No, there was uh, two or three things he didn't want to talk about. Uh, and he told me that from the moment we met. The first one was he didn't want to talk about his ex-wife and her present circumstances where she was what she was doing now that's fair and enough and he, he didn't want to talk about his children whatsoever that's and understandable the yeah. was, uh, they don't get on well at all okay uh, and uh, and then I, I did ask him did he get compensation for when he was shot those six times and he just wouldn't go there at all okay so, so, so the, yeah okay and and he was under, he was under was police protection there was one other thing that he wouldn't talk about and that was his uh, trial in Spain at the time, which was earlier this year for um, smuggling marijuana, sleeping pills uh, 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 into Ireland, P possession of a gun that was found in his back garden and being a member of a criminal gang. He wouldn't talk about that case. So there were the, the three or four issues he wouldn't go into, but he said anything else, ask me about, no problem. Okay, well, he was let go. We all know now, of course, time has moved on, that he was given a suspended sentence and let go, basically walked out of court there, go back yeah. a few weeks ago. And uh, this is in possession of a firearm and the, and the drugs and basically didn't do any time for that. So he's a free man again now. Um, okay, so the questions you asked him, I, I suppose, was it in your mind to talk about his life, how he got into criminality? Because he talks about, you know, his biggest heist was selling VHS recorders at one stage, making millions out of that. And he talks about the early days when he was stealing as well as a child, that he got into cram criminality very young. Was it in your mind to kind of focus very much on everything or were you very focused on what people really want to know about is, you know, did you organise the killing of Veronica Guerin? Look, even if he had admitted the killing of Veronica Guerin, or even if he had done it, he was never going to admit it to me. He was never going, that's one thing he's never no, going to No, but you'd be hoping while you're interviewing that he'd kind of slip up a few times and say things that maybe might incriminate him. Yeah, or is he, and, or is he clever? Is he a clever guy? Do you think he's clever? I, well, if you have, if you're going to get to that level of being a criminal, you're going, you have to be clever, in, you know, in some mm. ways. But no, the, my, what I really wanted to do was get his whole life story down on paper, as much as much of it as possible, because all the books that have been out there and the documentaries in the, in the past about him, they've they just start. They, they they'll say a few things about growing up in the sixties or seventies in Ballyferma, and then they skip forward to all of a sudden nineteen ninety, and he's a drug dealer, and then. He, you know, his gang kills Veronica, yeah. and, and you don't get much more than than that. Those little pieces of pockets of information. So I wanted to get his whole life story down on tape as much as possible. I you know I wanted to know 
his, his background, his environment, how how did he get involved in criminality? Is the you know his mindset really his first crime? Um, what was his first crime, by the way? What was his first crime? He was selling Tyndall or whatever you call it, bundles of stick at the age of eight or nine years old uh, in a pram door to door uh, in Palmerstown. Um, and uh, one of the neighbours said to him who, who, when he was knocking at the doors, I uh, said, I'll buy five or six bundles off you. And here's a fiver. Do you have change? And he said, my dad's at the end of the road. He'll have change and uh, I'll go get change now. So he left the pram at the entrance and he just ran and <laughs> never looked back. That was the first major right. crime you know, okay. at, at that young age. But at, and then at the age of 14 or 15, what happened to him was he was at 14, at 14 he, he dropped out of school and he was working on the boats. Uh, his, his father had got him a job in the B&I, but then he went to work as a merchant seaman. And he, he was addicted to gambling at that stage. I mean... Yeah. He, he got off the boat in Liverpool one day and in two hours, his, his month's wage was gone gambling. Yeah. So, so what no, I, I noticed out of the book, there's quite a lot of that in the book that he, he had a huge gambling addiction. So the money that he was getting was, was leaving his pockets as quick as he was getting it sometimes. Yeah. So what happened on that occasion was he, he went back on the boat for another month or another six weeks, built up some more money, got back to Liverpool and deja vu history repeats itself he's lost all the money he's sleeping on a bench waiting for the 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 merchant seaman's office to open again so he can go back in to get on another boat and the cops kick him off the bench saying he can't be sleeping here so he's walking down the streets and he hears a window being broken of a jeweler shop and he, he looks in he looks at the back window and he says to these two lads are you stealing and they said yeah and he says can i join your gang and they said yeah <laughs> so and so he spent the next couple of months uh, breaking into jewellery shops in Liverpool. Okay. I mean, in the book, of course, there's, there's for those who haven't seen the book yet, I mean, there's a litany of those pictures. Did he give you all these pictures, by the way? Some of the pictures from his early days and, you know, pictures of him and his family and weddings and all this kind of things. Did he give you those pictures himself? Him and Geraldine gave them to me. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, there's pictures of him doing weights as well. He was quite a fit man in his day, too. Um, yeah, and that very famous picture, of course, that people will remember, is where he stuck his tongue out of the cameras when he was being arrested and brought into the, the special criminal court. Um, but so let's we are going to move forward in time, um, and I'll I'll tell people a little bit more about what we're going to do. By the way, for those, and I know people are listening at the moment. God, I'd love to you know hear or see all of the stuff that he said. Now it would be impossible, obviously, to release all of the stuff he said because we'd be all day watching it and doing it. But we are going to work together. Uh, and we're going to talk about that at the end of the show. And there will be an opportunity for people to hear John Gilgan's words from his own mouth. And possibly as well, we will have video to go along with that where they'll be able to see him, uh, John Gilligan talking about Because I know people have a huge interest in it. And I don't know what that interest is, Jason, and why people have an obsession, primarily females, by the way, surprisingly enough, have an obsession with crime and crime lords and crime bosses. What, what do you think that obsession is? I, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. In, in, in that it's weird, isn't it? it? It's just weird. I mean, you 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 mentioned the photograph of him there sticking his tongue out. Yeah, he did that because a, a woman wrote him a letter in prison saying, "Would you st would you stick your your tongue out uh, for me as a personal favor?" And that's why he did that. That's why he did it. So, so there he was with four guards around him, handcuffs on both sides, being held as he was being marched into the courts. 
and he sticks his tongue out of the camera at the press. You know, it, it kind of comes across as defiance. But so he got involved, obviously, you know, with uh, obviously we all know that the names now are all familiar to all of us. Brian Mean and Dutchie Holland, as you mentioned, Peter Mitchell, uh, Paul Ward um, and uh, many others as well who were all involved, of course, in dealing in drugs and selling drugs in the Dublin area at the time. And he was the he was the boss. So he was making yeah. a substantial amount of money. Yeah, uh, he, he, he couldn't count how much money he, he was making. Um, at one stage, he told me he he gambled, I think it was 20 million punts mm. during wow. the early period, which is a phenomenal amount of money. And he was saying that some of the gang members were meeting him on the ports in either Belgium or Holland, and each time they'd have between 350 and half a million cashing it back to me and that seemed to be happening every four to five weeks at so, that time as well he, he he was good friends with john trainer um john trainer of course was also notorious and and veronica Guerin, um well if we remember the movie and the movie was accurate seemed to have a relationship with john trainer um she wanted an interview with john gilligan because he was the boss and she asked John Trainer to try and organise it. Now, we'll always, always remember that famous scene in the movie where she came to John Gilligan's door, where she assumed that she had an interview in the bag. And according to the movie, he punched her in the face and ripped her blouse. Now, I listened. You sent me over some of the tapes and what have you. And I've listened back to them. And I've also read the book as well. He denies this completely. And he says, he suggests this is all fabricated, that he did tell her to F off out of his house because she came in through the back door into his utility room, as he calls. And he said he pushed her out the door and closed the door and told her to F off. But he never ripped her blouse, never punched her in the face. So you're looking at him. You're sitting there, Jason, looking at him. Do you believe him? You see, the thing is, when when you're now, when you're interviewing some for somebody for 20 or 30 minutes, you can ask the hard question after hard question after hard question. And if they hang up on you, it's it's great. It's a great live radio show, you know, because you've won the yeah, battle. Yeah. But when you're doing an interview with someone over 40 or 50 or 60 hours, you have to be a bit more well, diplomatics. Yeah. 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 And and yeah, and, and 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 what you're trying to do is give the guy enough rope to hang himself. I mean, he got this, he got um a bit upset recently uh, over one interview I gave. I think it might have been on your late night radio show where you asked me about that picture and I said, you know, well, a photograph speaks a thousand words, doesn't it? And that was the answer I gave. Yeah. The, the photograph would be in, you know, black and blue. Uh mm. you know, so and he he was extremely unhappy with me over that because he's like said, why don't you believe me? He's convinced everybody should believe him. But 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 here's the thing. Do you get have you spoken to him? I don't know him. I've never met the man in my life. I can only go by what I'm reading. And, I mean, you sat there with him. And, you know, if you're sitting with somebody for 40 or 50 hours, you kind of get a sense of whether they're honest, whether they're truthful, whether they're sincere, even if they're a bad person. And, and by his own admission, he was involved in criminality all his life. So there's no doubt, you know, that he was guilty of all the things he admitted he was guilty of. So, you know, he was involved in crime. So he's a bad person as far as society is concerned. But if somebody has gone straight, and I know on numerous occasions throughout his life, he tried to go straight, but obviously ventured back into crime again. The money is always a, a reason to want to get back into it, obviously. But after sitting with him there for 40 hours or whatever it was, or 80 hours of uh, audio and 40 hours of video, did you get a sense that he genuinely was being sincere and honest with you? 
A lot of the time, yeah, I did. Because yeah. there's stuff we didn't have to say. For example, I, you know, after we talked about Veronica's, the, the alleged assault of Veronica, I said to him, for example, did, did you ever beat your ex-wife Geraldine? And he said, yeah. And I think you you would have heard that tape last night. I sent that yeah. one across to you. He didn't have to admit to that at all. Um, and I do believe when he starts to point fingers at the gang members who did carry out the... the the, the assassination mm -hmm. uh, who who did it like for example i'm absolutely convinced that john trainer masterminded the whole thing um, well, it, it makes sense to me and the, it makes well, the movie the, i suppose the movies insinuates that john gilligan ordered it that's what the movie insinuates um and, and that's of course what the police probably insinuated as well when they brought him to court the first time but from his point of view uh, the gang members were bringing the heat on him bringing attention to him and he was distancing himself from them, and they went rogue. That's his argument, isn't it? Argument, yeah. But look, if you're going to look at it from two perspectives, you know, they they were one gang, and and they, and and the left hand should always know what the right hand is doing in any type of gang. I I, I would believe, mm -hmm. but Trainer had more motive to kill Veronica Guerin than John Gilligan had. I mean, he he was he had an injunction against her that week because she was going to print an article about him being a heroin dealer, which would have completely destroyed him. His neighbor was was a guard, and the, their their children palled around with each other. So, uh, Gill the, the the reason they they're pointing the finger at Gilligan is because of the alleged assault, and you know, maximum he probably would have got six months in prison for that. Where with 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 trainer, he would have been a parasite for life. For being mm -hmm. a, a heroin dealer, um, I, 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 it's it's obvious that Brian Mean did drive the bike. Gilligan didn't have to give me the name of the the, the pillion passenger, and he and he blamed Charlie Bowden. And I actually believe it was Charlie Bowden. And one or two crime reporters had said to me that that makes sense that it was Charlie Bowden because Charlie Bowden was in the army. He was a, a you know he was a an expert marksman in the army. He knew how to fire a gun. And um, I'm just surprised that the authorities haven't read the book, have, haven't looked at the documentary and said, why don't we relaunch an investigation into Charlie Bowden and mm. is involved? Now, Charlie Bowden is currently in the witness protection program. Yeah, but he doesn't actually have a concrete alibi for where he was at the time of her death. Mm. Uh, of course. So, so where are all these people now? People want to know where all these people are, and and John Gilligan obviously talks about them quite a lot in the tapes. He mentions all their names. He often talks about Sherry Hutch and everybody else and all the other individuals that he was uh, aware of or involved with at the time. Uh, you know, these people you would know about better where they are. Charlie Bowden is in the witness protection program, obviously. Brian Mean, where is he now? He's in uh, Arbor. Is it Ar is it not Arbor? Um, what's that that the open prison in, in Ireland called? Something it's Arbor Hill, is it? No, it's Arbor Hill. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Arbor okay. Hill. He's. Yeah, oh no, he's that's there. what that's. Uh, I think that's a sex offenders place, isn't it? Arbor Hill. Oh, no. which, which which is the one? The open prison in the in. Oh, it's Shelton Abbey. Shelton Abbey. Is Shelton it? Abbey. Yeah, Shelton okay. Abbey at the. Yeah. yeah uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Kieran, as he was called, Kieran Muscles Kincannon. Kieran Kincannon. Where where is he now? No idea. And Peter Mitchell. Do do we know where all these people are now? Are they? And oh. Paul Ward, I know, is still in jail. Um. Yeah. And uh, uh, obviously, trainers has, has gone, and so is Dutchie Holland. They're both dead now. Um, so realistically, I mean, were they friends? Did he give the impression that they were all friends, or were they just business associates? Oh, he was definitely great friends with uh, Dutchie Holland. Yeah, definitely. 
And he wouldn't admit it at the beginning of our interviews that Dutchie was a hitman. And then he eventually came out with Shell and he said, yeah, Dutchie was a hitman. But I, I never bought the idea of Dutchie being the killer of Veronica Guerin because Dutchie has a, a prominent broken nose. And the witnesses at the time at on the Nace Road never mentioned a, a nose like Dutchie's. And, mm -hmm. they, and they didn't say it was probably a younger man, which kind of fits into Charlie Bowden. Yeah. Um, Trainer and Gilligan were friends for a long time, but he always complained about Trainer getting drunk all the time and being messy on the phone. And, um, yeah. he, you know, he just says that you couldn't trust the guy. Okay. It must have been difficult for him to have everything taken off. Did he talk about the time when obviously Cab went in and took basically everything his cars, his house, uh, the yeah. equestrian center, everything? So they took him basically from riches to rags. Yeah, and that's his biggest regret, not for himself personally, but for his family. He wished, mm. he wished that, you know, he bought his family houses and cars and properties and whatever. And um, the, the family mm. have had a big falling out over this because, you know, they, they've lost everything that he provided them with. And that's his biggest regret that they yeah. lost all that, those possessions. And also that he wasn't a better uh, husband or father, he told me. Do you think he was a violent man in general? Do you get the impression from things he said to you that he was violent? Well, if somebody tells you that they, they slapped their wife around a few times, they must be a violent person. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, because but I mean, I mean, violent to the extent, when we look back at, say, the life of the general, he was a violent person, right? He's, he ordered some really violent hits on people. He was involved in violence against other people where there were horrible assaults. Um, when you take, for example, Jerry Hutch, I mean, he was always kind of suggested that he was the ordinary decent criminal, if you know what I mean. In other words, somebody yeah. who wouldn't be involved in violence. Do you get the impression that John Gilligan would have been? Well, I don't think John Gilligan would have nailed somebody to a floor the way mm. Martin Cattle did. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't think that was in his DNA. Uh, okay. I, I think Cattle was a, a complete psychopath. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and I, and I also believe that Hutch, uh, there's a, a huge fairy tale built up around him of being more of a, an ordinary decent criminal than he really was. I mean, mm. you know, members of his gangs were involved in drugs, but yet you never really read about it in the papers. Um, so I think it's a, it's 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 trying to find a balance in act with Gilligan. Yeah. How? Because he was a small man, but he was a hard man, and he was he was feared. So that reputation mm. had to come from somewhere. Well, look. It's an amazing interview. The book is amazing. Uh, for anybody who hasn't got it already, I'll throw it up there on the screen again and people can see the book. It's available in all the usual places, Amazon or wherever you happen to get your books. The Gilligan Tapes. Uh, that's it there. I got my own copy of it here. Ireland's most notorious crime boss, in his own words, uh, by Jason O'Toole. And Jason, just before we finish up, um, the reason I wanted to mention earlier on about we were going to work together and do something together is because we've known each other for a very long time. And yeah. uh, you've entrusted me with these audio tapes and the, the video. Um, we're going to do a bit of magic on them, uh, do a bit of narration, and we're going to put together a podcast series because people want to hear it in not just your words, they want to hear it in his words. And I suppose it, it, when you read something, it's fabulous, and the book is amazing. But when you hear something in a person's words, you have a better sense of whether they're being sincere or whether they're maybe telling a lie or or maybe they're trying to cover up for something. So you get a better sense sometimes of that. And I suppose the audio and the podcast would make that better. So we're going to put together probably an eight uh, podcast series, an hour long each, 
uh, with narration, obviously giving you a timeline of his life. Not just about Veronica Guerin, obviously, uh, because a lot of the focus tends to be around Veronica Guerin when we talk about John Gilligan. But there's a lot more to John Gilligan than Veronica Guerin. Uh, and my condolences, of course, to the Guerin family and what happened to Veronica, of course, was wrong and everybody condemns that. But there's a lot more to his life in relation to criminality. And we're going to cover all that in the podcast series, obviously right up to what happened uh, with Veronica Guerin. Uh, so we're, we're both looking forward to doing that because you have the task of selecting all the relevant parts, Jason, out of that 60 hours, which is going to be fun for you to trawl through all of that. And then we have the task of putting it all together again. Yeah, and I have to say, I I, I honestly believe, the, look, when, when you look at the book and you look at the, the, the documentary, the, the book is my favourite out of the two because in the documentary it was two and a half hours long and it was a lot of talking heads. Gilligan wasn't yeah, talking Yeah, I watched much. it. I watched it. It, it. it was okay. It was good. But as you say, I don't think it gave you a sense of the trouble you went to to interview John Gilligan. You know, and that's, well, why, that's why the book is better because at least you get the actual quotes in the book. You know, it is all, literally as it's, as it's named in his own words. Um, yeah. Well, I think the... The podcast will be better again because you're actually getting to hear them. So pe- the, the readers, the, the audience can make up their own mind. You know, you, the, the ring of truth comes, always comes true when you listen to a, pe- a person speak. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, and you're, and you're going to be able to pick up on a lot more than the, the book did and the doc than the doc did. So I, I actually think if you have an eight or nine hour podcast on Gilligan, you're going to, you're going to, you know, the, the A to Z of Gilligan, it's going to be much more fascinating. Well, what we'll do is, we are putting together, as we speak, a trailer for the, the podcast, and that will be out in the next few days to give you a sense of what it's going to be like. And it will be coming very, very soon. Uh, it'll be an eight-part eight series. We haven't given it a title yet, but we will. But I think the Gilligan Tapes is probably the most apt title for it uh, because I think that's people, people it says it does what it says on the tin. Uh, it's been wonderful talking to you again, Jason. Uh, we'll catch up with you very soon again. And uh, we have a lot of work ahead of us. But I think people will enjoy it as much as they enjoyed this podcast today. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show now.